The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Wonderful to be with everyone this morning. It's a joy to be able to gather and worship with those of like precious faith, our loving Father who has given us such blessings of a spiritual nature, and it's certainly good to be back with you. I appreciate all the prayers offered up on behalf of Zoe and myself as we were away, um, and we had safe travels, and we're very happy to be back with you. I'm excited to have her here. You know, I've heard it said so many times, and this can be applied in, in various fields of thought, but I've heard it said so many times that behind every good preacher is a great wife, a great woman, and at least I have one of those things now. I've got a, got a great wife, a great woman, and maybe she'll help me become a good preacher one day. I know that she's going to help me in my faith, and I'm excited to have her here with me and excited to be able to share her with all of you. Um, and I thank you for the welcoming nature of, of your love and, and your words and, again, the thoughts and prayers. If you would turn to Revelation chapter 3, Revelation chapter 3, we're familiar with Revelation 2 and 3 as there are seven letters written to seven churches in Asia, and that's really where the book of Revelation is addressed. Only two of them have really nothing negative to say about them, but the rest have some problems that are addressed. Two are encouraged to continue faithfully, enduring persecution, and maintaining their steadfast nature of their faith with God. And the other five are reproved for certain things. And the last one in Revelation 3 and verse 14 to the church of the Laodiceans, we especially remember as the lukewarm church where Jesus said that you are neither cold nor hot and I will vomit you out of my mouth because of this. And notice in verse 19 what he commands them to do to combat that, that problem. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That word zealous is the Greek word zilao, and that means to have warmth or feeling for or against. It's from the Greek word zelos, which means properly heat or figuratively zeal. We can understand as we think about that, a word that I think we're familiar with and know already, that picture that is painted of a fire, a glow, something hot, really as it pertains to metal, burning in the fire and heating up to be forged, that when we have a relationship with someone we're close to or, or a thought about something we're passionate about, we're, we're hot for that, we're, we're on fire for that, we are zealous for that person or for that thing. Jesus is telling this church that you're not cold, you're not hot, you're just kind of there. That's unacceptable. There were individuals who are not all in with regard to their faith, and God's never pleased with that. We can't be Christians who are just Christians. We've got to be all in about it. And sadly, a lot of times you see that. Some Christians, you never see them at all. They're baptized and they don't commit themselves at all. We would call them cold. And then you see some who are there every Sunday, every time the doors are open, or every once in a while, and they're Christians, and, and they're kind of just going through the motions. Maybe we have been guilty of that ourselves, and we need to be careful about that because that's lukewarm Christianity, and Jesus says that's not appealing. No one really likes room temperature 
water. One thing that I've mentioned before is it especially affects me when it's room temperature milk. It's not appealing at all. You want it to either be hot and you maybe brew some coffee or tea with it or or you want it to be ice cold and that's when it's refreshing but not when it's just lukewarm tepid water that's room temperature we want to spit it out it's not appealing to us at all and that's what jesus is saying you are not on fire for me you're just going through the motions and god doesn't like that in deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 this is what we're required you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That word strength is interesting. In the Hebrew, it is an adverb, which pretty much means muchness. And so what he's basically saying is you shall love the Lord with all your muchness. And it might not make much sense to us, but it's emphasizing the magnitude of our love for God. Every fiber of our being... And not just every fiber of our being, but every fiber of our being to exert its full energy toward that loving God. That's what we're called to. That's what zeal is all about. It's about being on fire for the Lord. We're not just kind of doing these things absent-mindedly, but we are wholeheartedly into it. And we can relate to that with other facets of our lives. The jobs that we go to each and every day, they can become kind of mundane and uninteresting. And we start finding ourselves going through the motions. When we started that job, we may have been just gung-ho about it. We're so excited about it. We're on fire for this. We're passionate about this. And that's what it's about, passion. God does not desire dispassionate service, but requires zealousness in our service to him. We remember, though, that that zeal must be according to knowledge. Romans 10 and verses 1 through 2, Paul addressed the Jews' zeal, which was not according to knowledge. You have some that are very zealous, and you can see it. They're just glowing and buzzing with energy, but they're completely wrong about what they're doing. That's not acceptable to God either, so we need to remember that as well, but especially as those of us who are members of the church, and and we know and we're confident that what we're doing and what we have is the truth, we need to maintain that zeal. That's what I want to consider this morning, that zeal is something that has to be nurtured. Someone might say that if I have to work on my zeal, I have to to work on being on fire for the Lord, I have to work on being passionate about this, that it's not going to be genuine, it's going to be manufactured, but that's not the case. Don't fool yourself into thinking that. That's really just a way of saying, you know, I'm letting myself off the hook because if if I have to work at it, then it's not going to be genuine. But really, our whole point of trying to work toward it shows that it is in fact genuine you're you want it you may not have it at this time but you want to be more passionate for god and it is indeed something that has to be nurtured zoe and i recently have gone through so many studies of marriage and and a lot of of it is is about working toward it you got to work on it and it's easy at first it seems like especially as you're dating up to the point of marriage but but it's something that you've got to keep kindling the flame if you will you got to keep working on the passion for God. It's got to be nurtured daily. we got to work on nurturing zeal. Some believe, even those of the Lord's body, that this zeal is something that is kind of transferred to us or, or we're inundated with by some unexplainable way, uh, some would say by the Holy Spirit. There's a song in the supplement books that some congregations have that speaks of the Spirit moving right through us like a mighty rushing wind. And that's obviously a reference to Acts chapter 2, which shows that 
I don't think it's a song that we should be singing because that happened to the apostles, not to us. And it speaks about how they're requesting God to light the fire in our souls. And in a way, God does that. But how does he do it? He doesn't do it just by us praying it and waiting for that passion to come. It's got to be worked for. It's got to be nurtured. This is true of our love and service to God. Fervidness for anything will diminish over time if we don't nurture it. And so we've got to make sure we're nurturing our zeal. I want to mention four ways I think we see in the New Testament where we can nurture that zeal, maintain the passion for God, because when we become dispassionate in our service, God is not pleased. Firstly, I would suggest to you that what we need to do is spend time with God. And that's true of any other relationship, isn't it? When when we are passionate about a person, whether it's a, a spouse or a, a friend or someone just of a common interest, we become passionate about them. We want to be around them because we've already been spending time with them. And it's because we know things about them and we become knowing of things about them because we've we've spent that time with them. We we figured out some common interests. We've understood some things that are common irritants. Maybe we, we just have some things in common or we just genuinely enjoy each other's company. And, and because of that, there's a there's a glow there. There's a heat there. There's a, a zeal that is there. And if we're going to be zealous in our service to God, don't we have to spend time with God? I want to tell you that we spend time with God by studying his word. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, Peter commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how that's how we come to know God. How can we be passionate about God if we don't know God enough? And I know we know some principles about God, but we can always learn more and our knowledge can reach a depth if we but study we can't be passionate about our service to God if we're not spending any time with God. We're not thinking about the things of God. We're not considering who God is and what his desire for us is and, and the values that he holds himself. We've got to study his word to know him and spend time with him and therefore nurture that zeal. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 Paul explained that what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. He said, we've been revealed these things of God. He's given to them by the spirit. But if we don't spend time with God in his word, there is absolutely no way we can be passionate about him. I want us to notice in Romans 11, the passion that came from Paul, his zeal that came after he concluded this section of Romans, the first 12 First 11 chapters, rather, being matters of, of justification by faith. Really explaining the technical side of things. How are we justified by faith in Christ's blood? Why is this right for God to justify us in this way? And how do we do this? Romans 6 talks about baptism. But Paul ends that chapter in Romans 11 by saying, Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out? For is, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. I understand those punctuation marks are added by the translators because there aren't any in the Greek. There's a reason why you see some explanation points in there, though. Because it is very much a bursting forth of praise that Paul has because of all of the wisdom and the depth of that wisdom that was seen in those first 11 chapters. 
And it's like Paul can't help himself but to start, you know, you can almost see him scribbling faster, whoever's writing the letter for him, scribbling faster. And, and he's putting a lot into these words. Look what we just discussed. Look what we just considered. How God, before time began, knew all men would sin and fall short of the glory of God. He designed the Old Testament to bring us into a knowledge of that guilt and then usher forth the Christ that he could die and his blood could wash away those sins which we have committed. And no one knew this until now. Praise God. It's because he spent time with God in his word that Paul became passionate about this. You know, the reason why we become more zealous for God and that zeal is nurtured as we spend time with him in his word is because those matters start to be personalized. They become our own. When we spend time with someone we start to invest our feelings and our thoughts and concerns into their feelings and thoughts and concerns. And that's how it works. We, we start to hear things about politics and we spend all our time on Fox News, right? We start being invested in political matters and we begin to get a little more irritated or a little more animated when we talk about those things. You know, you can become dispassionate when you just turn that TV off and you don't watch it very much or read the newspaper. It's the same thing. It becomes real to us. It becomes a part of us. And that's exactly what happens when we read God's word and we study God's word and we worship God and we spend time with God. His things, the matters of his will that are so important to him to the extent that he was willing to send his son to die on the cross, his only begotten son, his beloved son, those kinds of things that are that important to him become that important to us. In Psalm 119, we read a lot about attitudes toward God's word. In Psalm 119 and verse 137, the psalmist writes, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. Psalm 119, 139. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me. Your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. In other places in this Psalm 119, he's talked about how he seeks God early in the morning, about how he hides God's word in his heart. And he's really enveloping himself with God's word. He's meditating on it. He's studying it and he's... He's showing us how much he desires it and loves it. And notice the result of that, verse 139. My zeal has consumed me. It's a consuming passion, a consuming heat, a consuming zeal, especially when the enemies don't even pay attention to God's word. When we spend time with God and his word, those matters of his become our own. We see that with Jesus in John, the second chapter. In verse 13 of John chapter 2, it says that the Passover had come and Jews, uh, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and dove, doves and money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out, uh, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Notice this. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. 
You know, this began with Jesus at a young age. In Luke 2 and verse 52, it says that he grew in wisdom and in stature with favor and, and favor with God and men. He had been in the temple at age 12, asking questions and answering questions with those who were the learned of the Jews, and they were amazed. I think we sometimes take it for granted. Jesus is the Word. He became flesh, certainly, but he's also a man. He's both God and man fully at the same time, and while we can't comprehend all of that in its measures... We understand that he had to grow in wisdom and in stature, just like we do. And it starts with spending time with God. And it led to his ministry where he wanted to do God's word to the extent that when he saw the temple was being used for common purposes, when it was meant for holy worship, it was completely set apart for that and that alone. And people were using it as a marketplace. He couldn't help himself. He was consumed with that zeal. It was eating him up. And that's how we should feel when we see people in sin, when we fall into sin. We should have that righteous indignation. That comes from spending time with God's Word. In Proverbs 23 and verse 23, wisdom tells us to buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Buy the truth and do not sell it. That's how we're going to become passionate about God and His will. That's how we're going to, to nurture that zeal is by making it our own. We buy it. And we buy it by studying it and applying it. And we're not going to give it up for anything. We make it our own like that. We'll be able to have that same kind of zeal that even Jesus had. Secondly, as we spend time with God, we also logically need to spend time with God's people. We need to spend time with those who have those similar interests, those same interests. In Proverbs 27 and verse 17, wisdom tells us that as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. And that principle applies here. How are we going to nurture our zeal? Be around those who are zealous for the same things. Peter uses this phrase in Second Peter chapter 1 and in verse 1. In his introduction, he says he writes to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Like precious faith. Not only is the faith that they have in its likeness precious, but they view it as precious. And if all of them view it as precious, they're going to, as they spend time together, sharpen that zeal, if you will, going along the lines of Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen, as iron sharpens iron. That's why in 1 Peter 1 and verse 22, Peter explains what happens when we obey the truth that you have purified yourselves in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren that word in is the greek word ice which we see in acts 2 in verse 38 that uh, you for the remission of sins to or into the remission of sins is what baptism brings us to when we obey the truth we are brought into the sincere love of the brethren we're brought into a fraternity of love and affection and it's because now we have that same precious faith. And when we spend time together and we love each other in that regard, the zeal we have for God, because we're spending time with others who have that zeal for God, it's going to play off of each other. That's why God's created the assembly. Remember in Hebrews 10 and verse 24, what the Hebrew writer said, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's an agitating nature of the assembly. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. 
so much the more as you see the day approaching. You know, he mentions in chapter 10 about, or chapter 12 about uh, how these individuals had at one point in time willingly allowed themselves to be robbed, to, to be taken advantage of here in this, this chapter, Hebrews 10. And that was at the beginning of their faith. And they were on, on fire for the Lord. They were very zealous for the Lord. But now they're being persecuted and they're stopping assembling. And, and when they stop assembling together and they're not spending time together as those of like precious faith, then that fire is dying out. It says stop forsaking the assembly. Because when you assemble, that fire is agitated. It's kindled the desire to love God and each other and, and do those good works is stirred up. Well, the opposite is true as well, though. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three says that evil company corrupts good habits. So when we don't assemble, we're spending more time with those who don't have that same zeal and that like precious faith. And inevitably, the fire will die out. We've got to spend time together, brethren, especially as it pertains to the assembling of ourselves. I think a graphic example of that is Elijah in First Kings chapter 18 and 19. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 18 when the prophets of Baal were challenged by Elijah and how they danced around the altar and they chanted and they cut themselves and cried aloud and Baal was not able to consume the sacrifice and Elijah proceeded to have water abundantly poured on the sacrifice and in a trench around it and he prayed to God and that fire consumed and licked up all the water and consumed and left nothing left. Uh, nothing there of, of that sacrifice. God gained the victory and Elijah had that faith about it the whole time. And then he went and he slew all those prophets of Baal. And what happened next was the king's wife pursued him and she sought to kill him and have him put to death. Jezebel, uh, we remember, is her name. And we remember Elijah and what he reached in his journey of faith. In verse 4 of 1 Kings 19, it says, He himself went another day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. In verses 9 through 10, he went into a cave and spent the night in that place and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Everything that preceded that point, all of the, the, the guts, the courage, the confidence he had to, to pursue that sacrifice and that challenge of the prophets of Baal victory, the righteous indignation, it was all about zeal for God. And you see him here trans, transition into a period of, of kind of cooling off. The fire's dying out. And the fire's dying out because there aren't as many people surrounding him. He says, I alone and left. And God proceeds to show him that he's not alone, that God is with him. And especially at the end, in 1 Kings 19 and verse 18, he says, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to, to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And that was after God had told him, I have more work for you to do. And verse 19 says, So he departed from there, went to do what God told him to do. We understand 
what a company of those that share the zeal we have and the faith that we have does for us. It turns on a switch. It ignites that fire. And if we're to be zealous for God, we need to nurture that by spending time with each other, those of like Christian's faith. Thirdly, we need to remember what it was in our faith at the very beginning. What was it like? Remember your first works. Remember when you came up out of the waters of baptism and you knew then that you were a son, a daughter of God. You started your walk with God. You left the church building or you, you left the woods. Maybe you were baptized in a creek or a lake, whatever it was. You came up out of that water and you had a clean slate and you knew God was pleased with you. You knew that that if, God forbid, your life was taken from you at that time or the judgment day came, you're going to go to heaven because my sins were just washed away. I'm a child of God. And how much force you took with you from the waters of baptism into your life to now live as a child of God and grow in your knowledge, grow in your faith. Where'd that go? The way in which we nurture our zeal is to always remember what it was like at the beginning you know it keeps coming to my mind because means always just got married but one of the th- one of the many um things that has been given to us as advice is keep on dating each other because we understand in relationships when we're dating it's it's fresh it's new it's different and 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 passionate about each other we we become spouses and over time it gets a little more difficult I've been told, keep dating your wife. Keep it fresh. Keep it new. Make sure you maintain what you had at the very beginning. And that's what we do with God. We've got to remember how it was when we started out. And if we continue to remember that, the passion will grow. Going back to Revelation chapter 2 is another one of those churches. And they were doing a lot of good things for the Lord. But he points something out that was very important that they had dismissed. In Revelation 2 and verse 2, he says, I know your works and your labor and your patience that you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You found them liars. You have persevered. You have patience. You have labored in my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, all these good, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And he gives them the solution. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The fact of the matter is, is they were going through the motion. They were doing a lot of good with it. They had lost their, their passion, their love, their zeal for Jesus. And he says, remember that. Return to your first love. When you were, when you were all in, you were passionate about him. You were joyous about your walk with God. You need to remember that. Repent by remembering that. Act how you acted when you first became a Christian. Not necessarily go back to your immaturity, but go back to your fervidness of spirit. Remember in Acts the 8th chapter when the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized, it says in verse 39 that when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. And that kind of picture is painted for us throughout the New Testament, especially as we see the healing done by Jesus and the apostles, when, when lame men walked, when blind men could see, when flows of blood were stopped, when people who had various ailments and diseases were cured completely and wholly. 
because of the miracles performed by Jesus and his disciples and how they would leap up. They would hop around. They'd run and jump. They'd follow Jesus like a little puppy dog. They wanted to be around him. And there were certain times when there were so many of that nature that Jesus had to depart. He had to go away for a little while, have some alone time, some sweet hour of prayer like we sang about earlier because they were passionate about the healing they had just been given. Why does that stop? What Paul tells us to do in Philippians 4 and verse 4 is rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. But how come we can rejoice when we come up out of the waters of baptism, but a few years later it starts to die out? I want to suggest to you it's because we don't follow Paul's instructions that are in that same chapter in verse 8. Philippians 4 and verse 8, he says this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, Whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And then he says, the things which you learned, received and heard and saw in me, these do and the God of peace will be with you. When we think about things, especially things that initially interest us, that's when the passion is cultivated. When you have an interest in something and, and you have you know a little bit of a spark that's there, usually because you know the spark is there, you pursue it to some degree and it just grows and grows and grows and grows into something greater. See how a little fire kindles the whole forest, right? James chapter 3 with regard to the tongue. And that's what Paul's saying. Keep pursuing that. Keep thinking about that. Meditating upon that. Cultivating that zeal. Nurturing that zeal, think about those things. Don't dwell upon the times whenever, you know, you were persecuted and you suffered and you got down about yourself. Maybe you were all alone standing up for the Lord like Elijah. I alone and left. Don't dwell on that. Dwell on the fact that the Lord stands with you is what Paul says of himself in Second Timothy chapter 4. You're not alone. You have others with you. There are others of like precious faith around you. You have the forgiveness of your sins it doesn't matter who's against you you're on god's side and he's with you 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 dwell on those things you dwell on the hope that you have of heaven you you think about those things and then your zeal your passion it starts to grow the fire gets bigger and bigger we see that done with paul several times throughout his epistles and ministry and first timothy chapter one is one of those times when he remembered those first works. He remembered when he obeyed the gospel. He remembered the joy that brought him, the relief that brought him, the hope that was afforded him. And he rejoiced God for it. And I imagine that's something he remembered every day. First Timothy 1 and verse 12, he says that I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. He concludes this after saying that this was an example for us. Now to the eternal king or king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's kind of similar to what we read in Romans 11. He, in the middle of an epistle, bursts forth in praise. To God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's because of his remembrance of when he was saved. In Galatians 1, he quotes some people who had heard about him in his ministry early on and 
Galatians 1.23 said that they were hearing only that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. If Paul ever began to wane in his passion and zeal for God, he needed to look back to that time when there was such a great transformation. He went from persecuting the church to being a part of the persecuted church. Persecuting Christ for being persecuted for Christ. And what caused that? What was behind that kind of motivation and the zeal that he showed? Truly, Paul was a zealot. That's religious extremism is how some would describe it. So be it. That's what we're called to. Extreme zeal for God and his word and his things of his will. Lastly, along those lines of remembering, we need to remember what we're doing all of this for. We need to think about that prize that has been promised to us. It's hard to be passionate about something that really doesn't benefit us in any way. And there is power and incentive. Anyone in business can understand that, that when you have a prize or something to work toward, place before, that's what that's what being paid for your job is all about. If you don't get paid for your job, who's going to go to that job? Who's going to work for that company who, for some reason, doesn't pay their employers or employees? That's incentive. I, I want to work so that at the end of the week or the end of the month or whatever it is, I get my paycheck. And I want to work harder so I can get that raise. I want to work harder so that I can get this, this commission and this prize, whatever it is. Incentive works. And God knew that. He understood that. He wasn't just saying, you know, I'm creating you to serve me and it's not going to benefit you in any way. I just am going to be a bully to you and I want you to serve on me, serve me hand and foot and, and it doesn't matter what happens to you. It's not going to benefit you in any way and expect us to actually serve him. He's given us incentive and there's no problem in talking about it. There's an incentive to miss hell and there's a great incentive to gain heaven and that's how we should live. The only way we have that zeal cultivated is as we think on that prize. In 1 Peter chapter 1, that prize is mentioned that we are born again to an inheritance, verse 4 of 1 Peter 1, that is incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We know the context. He goes on to say that you're going to be tested. Is your faith genuine? You're about to go through fire. But I want us to notice what he says in verse 9. That if you prove your faith to be genuine, you endure, you will receive the end of your faith. Remember, he keeps us by faith. The end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We think about that incorruptible, undefiled, everlasting prize of heaven. Especially, and I mentioned this before in our studies, he describes it as what it is not, not what it is. We can't really comprehend what it is, but we have a lot of stuff that is inferior to it. And those characteristics of these things on earth as corruptible, defiled, that fade away, we can appreciate something that doesn't do that because everything here does that. Can you imagine something so valuable, so lasting, so incredible? He says, think about it. Try to imagine it. Read God's descriptions of it. Talk to each other about it. Meditate on the prize because if you don't do that, you lose sight of why 
you're living the way you're living. And the fire's going to die out. And before long, you won't have any desire to serve God. This is why Paul was willing to die for Jesus. Remember that the spirit in Acts 20 and 21 prophesied about the trouble that awaited him in Jerusalem. And the disciples pled with him, don't go. And he said in verse 13 of Acts 21, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the reason he could say that and he had that desire is what we read in Philippians 1 verse 21. For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He gets to go be at the Lord if he dies in Jerusalem. And he knew that was the prize. He looked forward to it. And not only that, though, he said to live as Christ. And so as he meditated on that prize, even staying in the flesh, which was more needful, he thought, for the Philippians, was something he was also passionate about. Because living for Christ meant securing that prize. In Philippians 3 and verse 7, he says that he counted all things loss for Christ. And ultimately, verse 11, it was to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he says, not that I've already attained, verse 12, or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He says, one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He says, I long for it daily. That's what pressing forward to this is. That's what reaching forward to this is. It's not a physical thing you can reach forward and grasp, but you can reach forward in your mind, thinking about it each and every day. Are you feeling dispassionate about your service for God? Are you thinking about heaven? Not just when we come together. Is that something you daydream about? You daydream about everything that will escape when we get to heaven and everything that will gain in the presence of God? And do we live with that in mind? This is what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 9 when he spoke about running the race. He says that everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things and they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. So he says he disciplines his body and brings it into subjection, lest when he has preached he should become disqualified. He looked at that crown, understood its nature as imperishable, far above any other thing that anybody could ever offer him. And it didn't matter what it takes for him to get it. He was going to do it again. That's extremism. People might call that radical Christianity. And you hear that sometimes people talk about how, you know, I'm a Christian, but I wouldn't go that far. If it's going to cause me this pain, if it's going to cause people to view me in this way, whatever it may be, I'm not going to take it that far. You have me, who I'm a reasonable Christian, they might say, and then you've got the radical, unreasonable, closed-minded Christians. That's what a lot of those in the denominations, that's how they view those who are members of the church. You mean you don't use instruments? You know, that's extreme. What, what's a big deal? I'm not that dedicated to going by the letter of the New Testament law. But when it boils down to it, that's exactly what God requires. He doesn't desire a rote service of him. He desires, he requires an extreme faith. We need to be religious zealots. That's really a, a bad term. That's what radical Islamic terrorists are. They're religious zealots. The problem is their religion, not their zeal. You know, really, 
their zeal is pretty commendable. But as Paul said in Romans 10, in verses 1 and 2, it's a zeal without knowledge. Their religion is mistaken. If, if that kind of energy, and that's exactly what happened with the Apostle Paul. He was a radical terrorist, a religious fanatic, a zealot, killing people in the name of his religion. But he was wrong. And when his religion was co corrected, when he found the truth, all of that energy, all of that zeal was put to the Lord's cause of truth. And how much benefit did that have for the Lord in his body? We think about that prize and we focus on that. That's exactly what Jesus did in John 9 and verse 4. He said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. And he lived his life to work for God in a passionate and zealous way. We read a little bit how he did that in Hebrews 12. In verse 1, after the great hall of faith in verse chapter 11, it says that, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. That's how you're going to accomplish it. You look how he did it. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. How could Jesus endure something like that? You know, some would suggest that, well, he was God and man, and he used his deity to overcome whatever he had to overcome on the cross. No, that's not it. Else, it wasn't as valid as the scripture says it is. He had joy set before him. I think that is partly the salvation of mankind. He loved us that much. It was joy to him. But it was also his glorification back to his place in heaven with God. That's what he said in John 17, glorify me as I have glorified you. He longed to be back in heaven with God. Can you imagine the place we so richly desire to be? He left it knowing what he was leaving, came here, and his motivation was to get back there. And he was on fire for God's word. He was on fire for God's will. He was going to do his appointed purpose. He was going to fulfill what God sent him to fulfill. What we need to do is continually nurture our zeal. When you think that you're passionate and you're okay, continue to nurture it. You know, sometimes we, we talk about things, how you better, you better watch out with this or else you'll burn out on it, right? You're going to burn out if you do this too much. You're liking it now, but if you keep doing it and you don't take a break, you're going to burn out on it. But if God wants us to continually have a bonfire of passion for him and his word and his will and service to him, and he tells us to nurture it as we've studied this morning, he's not going to let it die out. It dies out when we stop caring for that zeal. We're called to zealous works and to zealous attitudes. Titus 2 and verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good's work, good works. And we can't fool ourselves into thinking this zeal is just going to happen. We need to care for it and nurture it. If you're here this morning and I've not obeyed the gospel, we invite you to drink from that living stream and to receive life from it by being baptized in water for the remission of your sins. You can rise up and walk in newness of life and experience that kind of of zeal and joy that all others have that's extended to you this morning if you have obeyed the gospel and you've fallen short in some sense or fashion maybe you just need encouragement but if there's any spiritual thing we can assist you with the invitation is extended to you as well come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected